I'm Jessica Abel, and this is Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. And this is our second workshop episode where we discuss and collaborate on work made by our listeners in the Out on the Wire working group. Each regular episode, we pose a challenge for listeners so you can develop your own stories. The Working Group is an online platform where you can post your responses to the challenges, get feedback from fellow listeners and from us. And then in our workshop episodes like today, which happen every other week in between the regular episodes, we choose some of the interesting work from the Working Group and talk about it to see if we can help move it forward. My collaborators today are Benjamin Frisch, producer of Out on the Wire. Hey. And fellow cartoonist, also my husband, Matt Madden. Hi, everyone. If this is the first episode of Out on the Wire you've ever listened to, please go back and start from the beginning with episode one. Believe me, this will make a lot more sense if you start from the beginning. So the work we're talking about here was submitted to the Out on the Wire working group, uh, which is our online community. And if you want to get involved in the working group, it's easy. You just sign up for my newsletter at jessicaable.com slash podcast, and we'll send you an invite. And by the way, if you're having trouble getting into the group, if there are any issues that come up, just send Ben or me a message through my website or on Twitter, and we'll fix it right up for you. Ben is especially speedy on these things, and he's at Benjamin Frisch. That's Benjamin, F-R-I-S-C-H, on Twitter. Yeah. So as I said before, each workshop episode, we're responding to a challenge posed in the previous full episode. Episode two's challenge was to come up with a focus sentence and an XY story formula for your project. Ben, can you remind us what a focus sentence is? Uh, sure. A, f- a focus sentence is a formula which takes the form, uh, someone does something because, but. Um, and it's a... Uh, It's a formula that I think is more useful for um, plot or character-driven projects. Matt, can you remind us what the XY story formula is? Here goes. I'm doing a story about X, and what's interesting about it is Y. The XY formula tends to be more uh, useful for idea-driven stories. And just as another reminder, this isn't a popularity contest. We chose the projects we're going to critique because they pose interesting questions for discussion. And if you are in the working group, don't worry, we will never talk about your work in public this way without first asking permission. So if you are shy and just want to post in the community and get feedback, that's fine. All right. The first story we're going to look at today is from our super member, Keith Britt, who has been awesome responding to many, many other people's ideas. He's been very, very insightful and great. And so we want to take a look at his focus sentence in XY. Matt, you want to read it? Sure. So Keith's focus sentence. I try to become a stand-up comedian because I want to communicate how the world looks through a veteran's eyes and show what PTSD is like to those who haven't experienced it. But I'm pretty sure I'm going to fail as I have no experience in professional comedy and the topic may be too dark to translate into laughs. And his XY formula is, I'm doing a story about me trying to do stand-up comedy and it's interesting because I'm using it as a platform to discuss military veteran PTSD. Uh, a reason I, I really like this story, um, or the idea at least, is that it, it's got a hook in that, like, um, when I hear uh, PTSD and comedy, like, I have some small experience in doing improv and just, like, it's really stressful being on a stage in front of people um, and even more stand-up comedy, which is so, uh, I don't know, harsh 
Like, people are just, like, not that nice. Like, I would think that maybe that would exacerbate PTSD. But apparently, um, you know, so that's the that's the the value that's being questioned here that I think is really interesting. Uh, my big question for Keith was, um, you know, whether is this about him and his journey or is this about PTSD, I guess, as a... Right. The, the, that's a big question, I think. The other thing I wanted to point out about the idea is that it inherently has a journey in it. This is going to be a podcast series, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it has, uh, like, for example, um, Alex Bloomberg's startup podcast about the beginning of his podcast network, Gimlet, you know, it has a narrative built into it. But I think your question is actually is absolutely right. And he kind of in his own focus sentence in XY, he kind of flips back and forth a a little bit about what he thinks the thing is about. Like his focus sentence starts out saying, I want to become a or I try to become a stand up comedian because I want to communicate with the world about PTSD and what it's like and to people who haven't experienced it. But I'm probably going to fail because I have no experience in professional comedy. That's not the but, right? The the Those are two different things. Like either the story is about I'm trying to become a professional comedian and this is my journey. And as it happens, my subject matter is PTSD. And so that makes it complicated. Or my mission is to communicate about PTSD to the world and get people to understand it from a point of view that where they can actually sympathize, empathize with it. Because, you know, PTSD is a thing that we hear about a lot. And it's one of those big subjects that's really hard to absorb, you know, and it's really hard to have like a really truly empathetic reaction if you don't have anybody in your family who, you know, has experienced it. Um, And to get at it from with a sense of humor can be a really good way to humanize and and humanize that that subject. Well, I I guess I could a little bit differently in that I see the the mission of, you know, talking very honestly about PTSD and the experience of being a veteran, that's the subject of his comedy. That's what his joke's going to be about. That's what his routines are going to be about. That's not necessarily what the podcast is about. The podcast seems to me should be about his personal experience of trying to make it as a comedian, being a veteran himself. It's not like he's someone, he's not going out to illustrate, you know, to uh, educate people about PTSD as a psychologist. He is a veteran himself. It really has to be about that more personal challenge of what's it like for him as a veteran who is still struggling to some degree himself with PTSD, trying to get out in a very stressful situation and talk about that same, the fact that he has PTSD in front of an audience, uh, in front of a hostile, potentially hostile audience. Um, and that's, I think that'd be very tough to talk about. You know, it's like, I'm not saying that's at all easy, but that is like uh, what I what I see as most fascinating in this topic. I, I totally agree with all of that. I just think that behind the scenes, he could have two different missions. You know, one is just to tell his own story and one is to educate. Yeah. I think uh, also the podcast, in addition to being about his attempt to to start this career, could itself be a comedy podcast. I mean, he's talking about being a stand-up comedian, but there's also really great comedy podcasts. Because you're right. You could do the comedy part. You could do like it's going to be a cross between like the the opening segment of Mark Maron, his intro every week. He talks about himself and what's going on in his own life. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that he could, you know, riff off of that that concept. And then also, um, you know, to, like combine that with the startup podcast and how Alex walks us through the process and the mistakes that happen. Um, it's definitely it's a super challenging project. You know, there's there's a lot there and there's a lot of potential. So I would, I guess, just encourage him to keep going. I think that... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Okay, we've got another idea or another focus in um, a very different vein from Dane Sanders. Um, and uh, I'll just read it for you and we'll go from there. At gobecollective.com, I'm telling the story of how creatives want to be seen in the marketplace but often feel invisible. And what's interesting is that when these creatives discover that being seen happens in business only after they see themselves as business owners. So Dane is clearly, he's um, coming at this whole um, storytelling activity from uh, the perspective of being an entrepreneur, creative entrepreneur, and having a business and trying to tell the story of the business via a podcast that he's going to do. So this is a this is actually going to be a podcast where he has guests. Right now, he's trying to work on a focus sentence for the podcast concept overall, but it's going to be an interview podcast. So each individual episode may also have a different focus sentence mm -hmm. that relates to this. The question that I had was the, the the entrepreneur startup podcast space is pretty saturated, I would say. I, I asked him um, to tell me sort of what was sort of specific and interesting about this. And uh, he told me that, um, let's see, in making uh, good on the focus, we deliver three things, inspiration, training, and our special sauce, accountability coaching. That's the machinery that transforms freelancers into entrepreneurs. I'm working on a little explainer video right now that teases out our special sauce. Um, and I think you, you have that. Gobi Collective exists to transform freelancers into entrepreneurs. At Gobi, we're a collaborative community. Think of it as a seat at the stool. The collective holds you up. And like any well-built stool, the platform stands on three legs, each required to make it secure. First, we deliver inspiration through Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. It features interviews with diverse business and thought leaders who've made the leap from freelancer to So uh, that was just a, a little bit of his video. Um, we'll post the rest in the show notes if you want to um, see the whole thing. I've been spending a lot of time in the last year looking into this space and trying to understand this kind of stuff. And to me, the the language that he's using here, like I can translate that into regular human language because I've been studying it a lot. But at first glance, it makes no sense to me. It just I it like sort of a glaze over it because I don't know what he's really talking about. Like, what does it look like to, you know, do some of the things he's talking about? Um, and. I think, ironically, like what he's proposing for freelancers to do and what he's saying he does for freelancers through this podcast and in other platforms, how to um, position themselves in the marketplace, like how to be somebody, if there's 53 million freelancers, how are you going to be the one who gets hired? You're going to be the one who gets hired because... Costumes. The, yes. No. Because you um, you have your own way of saying things and your own way of doing things and you're able to communicate the, that to the world right it's that's positioning that's the idea of setting yourself apart from other people and i think ironically that's what he's struggling with with his focus is positioning you know for the people who experience it it probably works really well and there's probably it doesn't really need to be different from everybody else because there's some basic things that you need to learn in order to you know, implement these ideas. But what he wants is to position himself in a new way so that people will see him. He won't be invisible among the creative entrepreneurial coaches. You know, he wants to be somebody who is standing out and being seen, um, which requires talking differently. This would all be a lot more effective if he was uh, sort of really speaking to like on a human level. Well, maybe the, another way to think of the human language thing, I don't know if this really holds water or not, but I find myself thinking in some ways he needs to flip the script for himself. He's Because the, the, his business model is that we artists and, and uh, freelancers 
need to find our inner our entrepreneur. And maybe the problem with him right now is that he needs to, he's an entrepreneur, he needs to find his inner artist. You know, he needs to find a way to bring this stuff to life in a way that doesn't sound dry and like inspiration and training and uh, the three legs of a stool that's going to, you know, draw people in, in a human way. Yeah, I think that's right. Because I, I, you know, again, as I said, I've been thinking about this stuff a lot in the last year. And so I, I can understand what he's getting at. But I know that if I had listened to this six months ago or eight months ago, I would have just been like, what is what? What's the what? Yeah, like I, I actually had to ask, like, what is accountability coaching? Like, I just don't know. It's the there's sort of a a jargon barrier. Yeah, definitely. He talks about masterminds. I know what a mastermind is. Do you know what a mastermind is? I have no idea. Very good. He's bald so, and he carries a cat. There you go. <laughs> like, you know, like, is the audience people like us, people who are cartoonists, who, you know, could really benefit from implementing more uh, business strategy in our way of going out into the world. And we could really use some positioning. Mm-hmm. If we're the target audience, you got to talk like us. Well, these target audiences, freelancers who are going to come from all different places. They're not all going to be versed in the language of startup culture. But I think that's the basic issue. But the way to get at it is maybe to start with an individual episode of the podcast and describe the 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 focus make the focus sentence or the X Y of that episode. What is the struggle that an individual creative person had? Uh, that they overcame by, you know, not necessarily, hopefully not just by taking this coaching program, but like by understanding more business concepts. Mm -hmm. And then can you explain those business concepts in a totally non-jargony basic way? Yeah. And and then work backwards, basically work backwards and say like, okay, well, if I'm going to, if I can explain that about an individual that way, how can I talk about the entire podcast that way? Ben, do you want to read this one? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, I should also say, so this was submitted um, by Emmy Guinness. And I should say, I know Emmy. Um, full disclosure. Yeah. Full disclosure. Ethics in uh, podcasting. Podcast <laughs> journalism. Um, I went to grad school with, with Emmy. Um, and so she submitted this story. Um, she says, Annie Edson Taylor seals herself in a barrel and goes over Niagara Falls because she thinks if she survives, she'll be rich and famous. But even though she lives, no one really cares. Okay, so what I found really interesting, I mean, it's an interesting story, of course, and it's it's nonfiction, so that's cool. I mean, who knew that this had happened? But um, it's still, I think, for Emmy, it was a little bit unclear what she was going for. And so she went one step further right in her first post and... Um, did a Soren Wheeler style focus sentence. Now, if you if you remember, we talked about this in the episode, in episode two, and it's also in the book. And Soren Wheeler is the executive producer. No, I'm sorry. He's a senior producer at Radiolab. And he kind of objected to the simplicity of the focus sentence and the XY story formula. So he had this kind of crazy formulation to kind of push it further. So maybe my sentence would be, this happened blank, then this blank, then this blank, and then you wouldn't f- believe it, but... <laughs> blank. And the reason that is an interesting, every single person walking the face of the earth is blank. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as she did that, I was like, oh, now I get why this might. Anyway, go ahead. You read it. Annie Edson Taylor is desperate for money 
And then she decides to risk her life going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, which no one has ever done before, so that she might become a celebrity. And then, against all odds, she does survive. And then, you wouldn't effing believe it, but her manager makes off with the barrel, touring it with a much younger woman and claiming that it was it was she who went over the falls. And Annie spends nearly everything she made on private detectives trying to track him down and ends up dying penniless anyway. And the reason that this is interesting to every person walking on the face of the earth is that it uh, perfectly exemplifies the ways in which life isn't fair, that risk doesn't equal reward, and that there will always be a man who steals your barrel and a younger, prettier version of you who takes your place. Bam! Yeah. Right? Like, how much better is that? Like, now I go, oh, I want to read that story for yeah. sure. The first two, I'm like, eh, okay, over a barrel, you know, you know, over Niagara Falls, da da da. But I listen to that, and I'm like, now that is a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. I was really impressed with that. It's funny because I don't think Soren Wheeler intended that as an actual formula. It was kind of like him saying how you know it tends to be. It's hard to to, to narrow down that way, but in fact, it does kind of work as a plug in the blanks kind of formula, as we see in this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he actually says blank when he was, yeah. but he was just making it up off the top of his head, and it sounds totally ridiculous. He laughed. I mean, he was joking. And yet when she plugged it all in, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that works. Because th- what it what it revealed to me is that the central focus of her story is not going over the falls in a barrel. Um, that's interesting kind of just on the face of it. But it's also something a lot of people have done and whatever. You know, what's the real story? Well, the real story is then the drama of her trying to become famous and trying to, you know, save her I don't know, like get out of the situation that she's in. She's penniless and poor and, Well, you and know. her exploitation by this man. Who yeah, this exploitation and this relationship with this manager, like that's, that is a story. And that's a story I haven't heard, you the, know? The, the focus sentences sort of feel like stories about sort of pieces of trivia. You know, like this is just like a weird piece of trivia. Right. Um, but the, the Soren Wheeler really put, puts it in perspective that this is really a story about this character's arc. And this weird thing that she does, that's the hook of the story, but um, that's actually not what grounds the story. What grounds the story is this woman's experience. It's not the central conflict of the story. She goes over a barrel, she survives the end. That's not a story, right? Mm -hmm. The story is the conflict, her conflict in trying to, you know, achieve some kind of stability financially and in in whatever other way in her life. That's the central arc of the story. And then the conflict is with this manager. And how does that get resolved? Well, she loses. You know, sorry, spoiler alert. Mm. Um, but the um, as soon as she did the Soren, I was like, oh yeah. And I started telling everybody, try a Soren, do a Soren, do it. Mm. <laughs> and it and a bunch of people did, and it really helped. It really worked. I think one thing that's interesting about this particular example, um, I feel like we've seen other examples of it on the group and stuff, is that the core story that probably got her interested in this idea of a woman who went over Niagara Falls and survived. That was the hook that got her interested, but it's actually not the story. You know, that's just, a, like you said, it's a trivia item. Uh, what makes the story is the stuff around it, which is more human and more ordinary. The fact that she got exploited, that she did it out of desperation, and the fact that she survived it, you know, is like why she's kind of in the history books. <laughs> but it's not actually what's interesting about her story. Having thought a bunch about the Emmy story, then this other uh, pr- this other focus sentence popped up by Dill May on the group, and I felt like it... Uh, was interestingly related to and sort of reflective of the Emmy story. All right, here's Dilma's focus sentence. 
young Welsh musician becomes part of London high society because of her ambition to become a well-known composer. But on the cusp of greatness, she dies on her kitchen table following an emergency operation by her unsupportive husband. It's it's a, it's a true story about a um, a Welsh musician, a young woman who, you know, had this kind of really amazing arc, and then just she she died from a botched abortion on her kitchen table, and her husband performed the abortion. So you see where I'm going with this, right? Like immediately, I'm going. That's the story. The story is what's going on with the husband. You know, the musician becomes a part of high, London high society because of her ambition to become a well-known composer. Like, that's not really the center of it. The center of it is what's going on with her unsupportive husband and how she ends up on the kitchen table at this unopportune moment. Death is kind of a problem in this sort of in this in this story, particularly because it's like all the stuff is going on. And then just suddenly, it, you know, it's over because she dies. Um, and that's, I think, a really interesting challenge as a as a storyteller. Like, how do you um, tell a story about someone who dies sort of before everything is resolved. What you just said is exactly right. So if you have this incredible arc of joining London High Society and she's a young Welsh composer and all this stuff, that's an arc that is the arc of the career. And if you don't get into that backstory stuff, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, she died, the end. And everybody kind of goes, well, why am I listening to this story? You know, and you have to set it up. You've got to put the gun on the mantelpiece in the first act. You've got to set up that this is where we're going. Or your listeners are going to be like, what? Where did that come from? If you wanted to keep the focus on her career and you didn't want to get into the sordid details of her backstory, that's fine. That's a legit choice. But then you really can't talk about how she died because it's too enticing. You know, you re- hear that at the end of the story and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't just drop that on your listeners and mm-hmm. be like, and the end. I think a danger, though, in sort of setting up the, the gun on the mantelpiece is like I'm always one of my favorite slash least favorite film cliches is when a character coughs in the first act of a film (laughs) and you're just like it's like we know they're toast you know by act three they're they're gonna die of uh, tuberculosis yeah tb is a classic classic tb well Um, yeah okay granted but i you know I don't literally mean you put the gun on the mantelpiece. I mean, you introduce the husband and you introduce the relationship and what's happening in the back, you know, behind the public face of her career. Uh, and that's not a cough in the first act. That's some that's a that's a thread that's woven throughout and has motivational power throughout mm-hmm. the narrative. OK, so let's move on to another one. All right. So here's a story idea that came in from uh, Vera Deger on the group. Her XY story formula is, I am writing a fictional story about a woman in her mid-20s who's addicted to self-help books, gurus, and programs, and it's interesting because her life spirals out of control due to her addiction to bettering herself, which brings to light the universal question of discontent and dissatisfaction in most people's lives. Her focus sentence is, Emma has hundreds of self-help books, she has a Google alert for any new hot trend in the self-help industry, and she's determined to become the next, the best version of herself because she feels like she's missing the how to live map in her brain and believe she can find it in these books. But in, but in the process, she destroys her health, finances, and relationships. Thoughts? Um, I, I picked this one um, because I, I, I just find this sort of the subject matter interesting. Like I um, have a personal interest in my own work with like sort of self-help. And I think it's a very modern 
sort of story. Um, it's also sort of a very American kind of story. And that that I find compelling from a personal point of view. I don't know if um, you guys feel that way or um, if you if you think that that's enough. Is that enough of a hook for you? It's enough of a hook for me. I think it's a hook. I'm definitely hooked by the idea of someone addicted to self-help books since it's a general cultural phenomenon, at least in the U.S., as, as you're saying. But I really feel like this one's calling out for a Soren because I'm, I'm, what I'm lacking is the kind of grab me by the throat kind of aspect of the story. Like I'm, I'm vaguely interested, like I'm flipping through the, you know, TV guide and there's a show on about a woman who's addicted to self-help books. I might, you know, I might pause for a second, but it doesn't feel like I have to see this, you know, I I need that extra hook. Like, Mm -hmm. does she become a guru herself? I mean, like, you know, pushing a little bit further, you know, thinking about how, yeah, (laughs) where can you push this to a little bit more into the absurd, maybe to bring out the absurdity of this kind of phenomenon? It absolutely needs absurdity. It doesn't have also good qualities. Right. But I mean, it absolutely is an absurdist story at its base. The idea that you would become uh, debilitated by self-help is, you know, obviously it's contradictory. And so it points towards something absurdist. Mm -hmm. I Um, mean, there's a there's a central irony to that like there's and that that i think is a really good sign in any story it's like if there is an irony at its core um even if you don't have a story constructed around it yet i think that's a really good sign Mm -hmm. i'd like to mention her working title which i think is actually really clever although she wasn't sure about it which is self-help wanted (laughs) that's good i like that that irony in there yeah but i do think that your idea matt of like taking it one step further where it's not just that she uh you know I mean, I could I could see how this story could play out where it's like you, you're you telling the story of her, you know, one self-help thing after another and you go through these various stages and then it gets worse and worse and then it ends. Right. So there's there's going to be a problem with like what's that last conflict and it's going to have to be some self-help regime that's like extreme and crazy and it's the thing that totally like ends it for her. But you could also go a different way where it's like. She, this is the that's the nadir of the story, and then she tries something different, like becoming a guru or something that mm-hmm. turns everything around in this unexpected kind of way. There's another story in the um, uh, in the working group that sort of uh, reminded me in in some ways of this. I don't know, or maybe it has some of the same um, sort of issues at its core by uh, Denise Dorrance. Did you want to read that one, Matt? Yeah, so Janice uh, wrote uh, the following XY. I'm doing a story about one family's harrowing, heartbreaking, and even hilarious journey around the globe to find a cure for their son's mental illness. And it's interesting because who said there was a cure? And she also wrote a focus sentence. One family travels the globe in search of a missing son and a cure for his bipolar illness because they're desperate to get him back to normal, but there are no simple solutions. And what is normal anyway? And so what, what is it about that uh, project that, that puts you in the mind of uh, Vera Dieter's self-help junkie? Well, I think they're both stories that uh, don't, don't necessarily have a clear direction in their end mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. You know, when she says, uh, it's interesting because who said there was a cure? Uh, that feels a little bit like a cop-out to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, there needs to be again some kind of irony or um, something. right, and it's there's like, like, and what is normal anyway? It's like she's suggesting that they do this world tour and then go, oh, he's fine as he is. Mm-hmm. 
which if there's some big revelation there, something that happens, you know, at a climax where they are forced to understand this, that could be good, but it's not really pointed to by what she's got here yet. So she actually revised it. I'm going to read this, um, the, the, the new why um, mm-hmm. she sort of followed up on you, Ben. And she said, and it's interesting because it turns out his condition brings to the surface hidden conflicts in the family as they discover in an unexpected way that what seemed to them to be just his psychosis is actually an uncannily profound and accurate reflection of their own issues. Which seems like a good insight into how to investigate the story for herself, but Mm -hmm. it's not what's interesting about the story. Like, that's not a hook. I don't listen to that and go like, oh, I got to hear this story. You know, it's... Right. That sounds like an insight you will get from the story, but it's not what the story is. Right. Yeah, I I do think, though, that that it's what we can all kind of relate to. Um, That's the universal, I guess. Yeah. And and it's um, like I I like I like that. I like that direction because it's it's about the story now has an arc. Yeah. No, I think that's all fine. I think this is very useful thinking for her, but I'm not sure that that's how. Like, she still needs to think through what are the things that they actually discover, what are the conflicts that they come up against mm-hmm. that force them to to understand things differently? And how are those different from things that we've seen before? You know, there's a, there's a great comic um, by David B. Uh, in, called Epileptic that's, yeah. that's not the same but has some similarities in that you know this is a it's a nonfiction memoir comic about his brother who is epileptic and his family went through some major uh contortions to try to solve this problem to try to help his his brother um who in the end is kind of not helpable you know right and but the the core of that story is really david b like david b is the the person that you relate to in that story. It is like, yeah. it's really his journey. Right. I mean, it's him come to terms with his own family and his mm-hmm. feelings about his brother and his feelings about his parents. And and I think that relates to Denise's new why in the sense that, it, you know, uh, a, a problem like this in a family, whether it's mental illness or, or whatever it is, uh, alcoholism, um, and the attempts to address it or not, you know, uh, says as much about the family as a whole and their dynamics as it does about the one member uh, who who's sick or has whatever issue. The the proposal is to do a series, a graphic novel made up of single panel gag cartoons, uh, working title of Baggage, which is awesome, by That's the good, way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has a little drawing. It's really beautiful drawing style. Um, but it, the fact that it's a true story, again, David B's story is also a true story. There are a lot of ways to get into it that draw on traditions of fiction and, and use tools that are, I mean, the kind of stories that, the kind of radio that I, we're talking about in this show and on in my book um, are all, you know, using fiction techniques to tell nonfiction stories. Mm-hmm. I have to say the idea of a book length, essentially a graphic novel made out of, of gag panels um, is really audacious. <laughs> it's pretty radical. I'm fairly skeptical, but it also, it kind of sounds amazing too, like the idea of having a series of like one-liners and, wah, wah, you know, and Desert Island, you know, panels that somehow add up to a larger narrative uh, with insights about, you know, family and and mental illness. Uh, Sounds very ambitious. You know uh, there are going to be some shrink offices in this one, right? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, go for it. Okay. Our our next one is from MK Zirovich. 
And uh, she's doing, if I understand, a um, it's a nonfiction comic that she's actually in progress doing. She's Yeah, it's like a memoir uh, graphic novel, I think. Yeah, and so um, her uh, XY story formula is I'm doing a story about a new nurse on an AIDS care unit in the 1990s, and it's interesting because she becomes an artist along the way. Right. So she, we went back and forth. She went back and forth with you and and with me a little bit um, about that. And straight out, a story about, you know, a young nurse on an AIDS care unit in the 90s, already interesting, you mm-hmm. know, but it is a topic. It's not a story. You know, it's the X for sure. But why is it interesting that she becomes an artist along the way? That's like not totally clear to me. You know, I could be interesting, but I wanted more from her. Um, and and so we, we went back and forth. And she said, okay, so here's her second attempt. I'm doing a story about a new nurse on an AIDS care unit in Chicago during the 90s. And it's interesting because she struggles with appropriate boundaries, has a needle stick, and as a way to cope with it all, becomes a visual artist along the way. So that we get this idea of coping, that the this is her technique for coping is that she becomes a visual artist. Um, and And basically, I said, okay, that's that all now it's starting to make sense to me. I see how the arc of the story is playing out. There's a there's an anecdote there with some danger, you know. Right, right. The raising the stakes, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then, um, I then I said, I think you need to go a step further with this and do a Soren. You know, what's the special sauce? What's the thing that's going to really make this resonate? And she totally knocked it out of the park. I was like, this. Now, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. So here's her here's her Soren, ready? MK's dad died while she was in nursing school. Then she went into AIDS care so patients wouldn't remind her of him. Then she started painting wooden boards to memorialize her dead patients. And then she became friends with a patient who was an artist, a painter. And then you wouldn't f***ing believe it, but she had an accidental needle stick while caring for him. The reason that the story is important to every single person walking the face of the earth is because we all deal with loving and losing those around us, and we are all taking turns being sick, and there's no real divide between a patient and a caregiver, and, as it turns out, art can help us. As the poet Marie Howe said, art can hold it. I'm getting, I'm actually getting chills right now. I, I'm actually, <laughs> there are actual chills. Like, it, I thought, that that is a book. Like, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty deep. Um you know, and the, and then there's a, there's a core irony to get back to that sort of idea about irony. There's a core irony there that it's like um, somebody who is grieving, you know, becomes a caregiver. You know, somebody who is in need of care becomes a caregiver. It's right, and she ironically is trying to get away from her dad's death, and then goes into an AIDS ward where people are dying left and right, and has to deal with that. And like, you know, there's just there's there's a lot of layers of complexity there. No, I really I think it's. You know, she's three quarters of the way through this book. I mean, this book exists already. Um, but she was saying in the comments that she felt like this was a really helpful process for her to actually clarify her own understanding of her work. And and I hope it is. I mean, if she's three quarters of the way through that, I mean, she's got another quarter or whatever. And she can she can really draw out these elements. And sorry, I just like this, this idea of um, you want to care for somebody, but it's like, their blood, their sort of essence is a dangerous thing, too. And so it's like you want to be close, but you can't be too close, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and there's parallels to the emotional risk as well, you know, mm-hmm. that it's emotionally risky to deal with, to, to care for people who are dying all the time. Again here, the Soren formula works surprisingly well in, in the context of 
a pretty large sprawling work precisely because it is so over the top where um there's not a like a single lesson to be drawn from this book you know like you're talking about Eleptic by david b also it's a similar case where it, he doesn't really have one conclusion that he draws from this stuff it's actually it's a series of re- related observations and what matters about it is that it's important to everyone in the world because you know we all deal with this stuff we all deal with lo- loss and taking care of people and and art and and as artists and people who watch art trying to figure out how it all makes sense and holds together and and i think but i do think um phrasing that way can help focus in a long, precisely maybe in a longer sprawling work of memoir where you're just telling lots of different stuff to have that kind of eye on a sort of larger goal of the whole work. So it seems like that helped her in this case of a work that's you know already underway to uh, to to kind of guide it a little bit as she goes. Yeah, for sure. All right, um, we like to take a question or two, um, and it's going to be I think one this time because we talked a lot. You guys, we talk a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from the community. So we're going to have this uh, question from Trevor Christensen. Um, and he says, one thing I've noticed is that it seems like a lot of us have really big project ideas. Yes, you do. Things that would take a full time or a year or more to complete. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's better to abandon that project for now to complete something smaller that's more manageable? What about breaking up the big project into smaller ones? So I come to this as um, someone with a pro- with a problem of... Um, over ambition. But one thing that I have learned is that especially when you're starting out, like right when you're, um, you know, when you're trying to make up that the gap that that Ira talks about, when you're trying to make up the gap, um, smaller projects are infinitely better because you might actually finish them. And and finishing is super important. Finishing is how you get better. So I think it's a real question of like, where are you in your journey? Are you somebody who is... Um, you know, really experienced with it with your art form, or are you just starting and you're really trying to, you know, you have some big idea that you want to try out? I mean, I'm I encourage big ideas. It's great to have big ideas, but I think you're absolutely right that like initially, in terms of trying to learn the craft, uh, shorter work is just better. It's just better because you can do a lot more of it and finish things and learn from your mistakes and start over. And you can still do the same things that you would be doing in a larger work in microcosm. Right. Or and in miniature. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that the the big projects that people are trying to take on in this group, I think it's great. I and mean, they're not going to finish them, you know, in the working group in the next few months. That's not going to happen. Um, but they could build the structure and the understanding to move forward. But that means, you know, it's a lot of commitment. It's a lot of... Um, uh, you really have to have it in your heart to to move, you know, to keep keep moving with these things. And you need to know yourself a little bit and see whether that's in you. Mm-hmm. Matt? I have nothing to add. I agree with you guys. <laughs> All right. So that's it for episode 2.5, uh, the, the second workshop episode. Um, and there's so much that we couldn't get to in this week's episode. There always is, but I've just been knocked out by the quality of people's um, focus sentences and their XYs and the quality of the conversation in the working group. It's been amazing. We have over 250 people in there now. Um, and I think for this challenge, we've had probably close to 50 submissions already. And remember, that the, the challenge is still open. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, darn it, I missed it. Well, you're not going to get on the working on the workshop episode. 
But you absolutely can get into the discussions, post your ideas, and and get feedback from, from people in the group. This is sort of like a rolling thing. Like, if you want to do your episode one stuff now, that's totally cool. Um, you know, we're all there to critique it. Or, right. if you, or if you, you know, if you already have your story idea and you are ready to jump in at episode two, then, you know, that's fine too. Right. So it's all, it's all there for you. Anyway, you can check out all those ideas that are, are already there and see if you want to get involved on the Out on the Wire working group. Um, we've got people in there building stories about Arctic exploration. We've got a true story about two brothers who are also Olympic athletes. A story about life post-religion. Women who break the space-time continuum with their wristwatches. And a lot more. Um, I'm also, and you guys don't even know this yet, I'm hatching a plan for an impromptu hangout on Friday, October 2nd to answer questions and talk story ideas. So I will, inside the group, I will post an announcement about that, about what time it would be. But I'm just thinking I would just show up for an hour and everybody can just kind of like talk together about what we're doing. Um, so if you want to get an in- invite to the group, head over to our show page at jessicaable.com podcast and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, and at the show page, you can also read up on the show notes from our other episodes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, find links to our social media accounts, and find out about our Patreon, which is a great way to support the show. If you become a patron, you get access to lots of extras, like the full 50-minute interview with Stephanie Fu from episode one, music downloads of Matt's awesome songs from the show, um, and we're even offering, at certain levels, hand-drawn internet avatars for you or for a friend. And we may also start having sponsors on the show, and being a patron will mean that you will have access to ad-free versions of the show. Uh, A special thanks to uh, Wayne Smith for making a post on the working group, um, encouraging people to do iTunes reviews. It's super, super helpful, and we got a really great uh, response from that. Right, yes. uh, I should mention the iTunes reviews. We have a few awesome iTunes reviews. We were new and notable because of those reviews and because of the ratings. We totally appreciate that. If you haven't done it yet and you want to spend zero money but help us out a lot, you can go to iTunes and rate and review us there. And if you don't know how to do that, you can go to jessicaable.com slash podcast, and we put together a little how-to with pictures. It's very easy, um, and you have a sort of walkthrough guide. You can find me on Twitter at jccable. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch, and Matt is at mmaddencomics. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. We'll see you next week with episode three, Walk in My Shoes, where we'll learn about what makes a character and how we can connect. With exclusive interviews with Ari Daniel Shapiro, Glenn Washington, and Daniel Alarcon, and more from Ira and Jay. We'll see you then. See ya. Bye-bye.